0: Hello, it's Tuesday, March the 3rd. This is the Andrew Pierce Show, coming as ever from the Daily Mail Coming up, a revolutionary new cancer treatment. It could offer a second chance to people who've got terminal tumours. We'll be getting the latest from the city on the economic sanctions against Russia. Can the blood-soaked dictator Putin be toppled? Ukrainian refugees, the government says it's going to move further to allow more to come here. Britain's volunteering to take up arms in Ukraine? They sound mad, but I'm talking to one who doesn't sound mad at all. But first, I'm talking to a former Ukrainian MP and current advisor to Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister about the growing humanitarian crisis as Putin commits war crimes in pursuit of his mad goals. President Zelensky of Ukraine has accused Russia of committing war crimes. This is six days into Russia's invasion. Missiles and rockets have hit the cultural heart of Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv, in what officials said was a deadly and cruel attack. Civilians have been confirmed to have died. So joining me now is the former Ukrainian MP Svetlana Zalishuk, who is an advisor to Ukraine's deputy prime minister. Svetlana, you're talking to us from Beregova, which is a a town near the Hungarian border. What is the mood like where you are?
1: It's uh, pretty safe here. We don't hear any shellings, but at the same time, many people with their kids uh, and vulnerable, I don't know, grandparents also try to uh, cross the border and go uh, somewhere abroad uh, trying to save their families.
0: So are you on your way into Hungary or are you going to stay where you are?
1: We would like to stay where we are. We would like to stay in Ukraine because uh, I'm personally, I'm not ready to be called a refugee. And I also want to be a responsible and useful citizen on the ground. So, uh, for example, I'm trying to talk to journalists, yeah. international journalists to report of of on what's going on here and what can be done. We also coordinate some logistics to bring humanitarian aid and to bring some uh, weapon even. Uh, So this is also part of my job at the moment. Uh, At the same time, there are a lot of ordinary people who, for example, stayed in Kyiv, capital of Ukraine, or small towns around the capital. And we are trying to get them out from there because More and more, Kiev and towns around becoming encircled by the troops and people uh, people already running out of their food, their water, supplies, medicine, so people don't have cars or the roads completely ruined already on some of those uh, cities. So we are trying to get them out from there.
0: And, of course, we now know that Putin has ripped up the form book for how to prosecute a war. Missiles and rockets, Svetlana, are targeting civilian areas.
1: Yes. From the very beginning, it looks extremely ugly and devastating, uh, an act of terror on, on a peaceful country which has never threatened anyone. Today uh, at night... Uh, I've seen pictures of one of the maternity hospital has been hit by a by a rocket uh, just outside of Kiev. Uh, and uh, you're right, Mr. Kharkiv. Uh, I think the whole world have seen those terrifying pictures of several ballistic missiles hitting the biggest uh, square in in Ukraine. Uh, and many civilians died, have been killed, and have been wounded, kids amongst them. Without a doubt, what's happening now in Ukraine—it's war crimes and crimes against humanity. And I'm with—I'm absolutely sure that Putin will be prosecuted in a new Nuremberg.
0: Arms are being sent into Ukraine from the European Union, from Britain, from Sweden, for instance, Germany for the first time, arming a country that's involved in military conflict. What else do you want people to do, Svetlana?
1: First of all, I would like to say thank you on behalf of all Ukrainian nation to all those people who are helping us. Not only to the governments, but to the governments in particular, of course, because they take the leadership to help us with weapon, uh, with protection, with humanitarian aid and, and so on. But also to ordinary people who are sending small donations, just five pounds, sometimes can make a difference if there are like hundreds and thousands of people decide to send those small donations. So we really feel it. And believe me, I'm here in this berg of a town and I'm talking to some just people in the streets and they discuss of what uh, UK leader said, of what German leader has said and how do they help us. So we, on a very human level, feel uh, this, this tangible, tangible support. Now, I also want to say that, unfortunately, some of the help has been delayed because Ukraine has been asking to deliver us weapon already for months. Because yeah. it was not a surprise that Putin has been preparing for this attack. He was amassing the troops am- around the Ukrainian border. We have seen with the satellite pictures that there are 150,000 military is standing there ready to attack. And we were asking for weapons, but some UK- European countries. Uh, refused that, to do so because of whatever reasons, yeah. uh, so we would have been much better prepared if this coordinated response came in time. but now, coming back to to, to now still yeah. i mean uh, we feel this support. what has to be done first of all, of course, we still need weapons we, uh, we need uh, stingers uh, to shoot well, to uh, deal with the missiles that are coming on our peaceful cities. Uh, I think that there is the whole list that is being coordinated and articulated by our Minister of Defence. When it comes to humanitarian aid, I also hear that some towns are running out of food because shops do not work. The deliveries from abroad, for example the supplies, the, 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 the supplies are broken, are not also delivered. So this is also extremely needed and and um, uh, uh, people really need it. Now, I also want to say that our international response has to be coordinated and has to be strategic. We understand that Putin is not going to stop, right? He came here to kill. He doesn't believe in Ukraine as, an, as a state, Ukrainians as a nation. His somehow obsessive idea to conquer Kiev, uh, to make sure to to uh, make Zelensky surrender, uh, to make us refuse from our European ide- ideas, and it's just not going to happen. So we have to be prepared for the future, for even stronger response when it comes to sanctions and when it comes to resilience and resistance. So in my mind, we have to be extremely practical, and uh, I, I I do believe that. If there is a force that can stop Putin, it's his people, it's Russian people, angry Russians standing Mm. in the streets and protesting against their own leader and asking their own leader to stop this war. So this is where we have to make an impact so that all Russians really feel that this is war against, against humanness and they would be our allies in russian streets
0: well the very best of luck to you this newspaper i'd let you know svitlana we're doing a major appeal for you and a million pounds has come in already from our readers which is going to help the people of ukraine so the thank very, you so much the very best of luck to you and we're all thinking of you and we hope things work out that's svitlana zalishuk she is a former member of the ukrainian parliament and she is an advisor to ukraine's deputy prime minister Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free in full, along with our podcast and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So after the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said at the weekend she would support British nationals who choose to go to help fight in Ukraine against the Russian invaders, people are turning up to enlist at the Ukrainian embassy in London. The Ukrainians are effectively setting up a new form of the foreign legion. Among those going to the embassies, Leon Dawson, who plans to join Ukraine's defence effort, despite having no military experience. And he joins me now, Leon. Now, what is your background? Why are you doing this? And um, have you ever held a gun, picked up a gun, fired a gun?
2: Um, I've I've fired a gun on a few holidays and a few shooting ranges, but no, I have no military experience whatsoever.
0: So you've got no military experience at all. So what is your background, Leon? Um, I'm British. I'm I'm
2: British. Um, I I own a gym um, and I'm just a regular man, really. Just a regular man who just... I've seen what's happening on the news. I've... I've been involved, I've seen it on the social media, and I've I, I just got to do any help I can, really.
0: OK, so you took yourself to the Ukrainian embassy. I, I tried to call the Ukrainian embassy, but I got no uh,
2: no response Yeah, so you can't get through. So then I just turned up there, they gave me an email address and a phone number, which I then emailed. They they made me fill out a bunch of forms, um, and then they said, wait for an email back from us, and then we will basically set up an interview at the Ukrainian
0: embassy to, like, sort of vet me, and then I can, I'm free to go. And what happens, you fly to somewhere like Poland, do you, Leon, and then... Yeah, you fly to Poland and then you just get
2: you... I think they pick you up because we was the plan was originally was to go on the train, but they've stopped all trains into the Ukraine, obviously. So. Yeah,
0: so you'll probably be there in Poland with other people from around the world who want to do this. I should, I should think so, yeah, I should think so. And yeah. they'll give you some military training first, presumably. Presumably, yeah, presumably. Because a man with a gun who doesn't know how to use a gun could do more harm than good, of course. <laughs>
2: Of course, yeah, of course. I think if your intentions are pure, you're fighting for the right team and you've got a little bit of common sense, I shouldn't think you're in too much trouble.
0: What's your view of your family about this, Leon, and your friends?
2: Uh, they're, they're, they're all upset. They Obviously, the people keep telling me the same thing. It's not your fight. It's not your problem. Stay at home. Look after your loved ones here. But it just seems like the right thing to do, you know? I'll just... I think women and children should should be protected. I think as men this is our job on earth, no?
0: Well, yeah, and of course you've seen the you saw the picture on all the front pages today. I've seen what's happening. It's absolutely terrible. Yeah. The, the six the six-year-old girl who was killed, the 10-year-old girl who was killed. What about your own safety? Are you not worried that you, I mean, I talked to um a military commander the other day and he said, "Look, these these people, they're very keen and very enthusiastic, but they could come back in body bags." That's, a, that's,
2: that's realistic. Um, I'm not under any illusion that uh, danger is not imminent. Of course it is. But uh, in situations like this, you've got to do what you've got to
0: do. Now, you run a gym or you own a gym, so you're presumably a, f- you're a fit guy. Yeah, I'm relatively fit and healthy, yeah. And I think uh, a relatively fit and healthy man can do uh,
2: so much good to, to a family or people that are not as fit and healthy, uh, that are struggling. I'm sure I can do mm. a lot of help.
0: And what about what do the people think at your gym?
2: They think I'm absolutely crazy. Everyone just keeps thinking, "Wow, like a lot of people to be fair have been really nice. The messages I've got are really nice. People are sort of like commending me for for the for for having the bravery to go mm. um and I think a lot of people wish they could go, and I think a lot of people would would have liked it would like to go but they sort of come up with excuses or
0: reasons why they can't. And I can ask you a few personal questions, how, I mean, how old are you? I'm 37. Right, so you're not in the first flush of youth, you've been around a bit, you've been around the block. Yeah. I mean, Do you have a wife or partner? No, 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 I'm single. So you're single, so that's probably as well, because I don't suppose your partner would be too keen. No, definitely not. No children? No children, no. And what about your mum, what does she think about this? She's tried to talk me out of it and tell me
2: that it's a... Terrible idea, and not to go, inv- not to get involved in it. But deep down, I, I think she'd be proud when I go. I've made my mind up. Yeah,
0: you've made your mind up. Okay. Have you set your heart on where you want to go? Do you want to get to Kiev, the capital, or just wherever they send you? Yeah,
2: I want to get you, wherever they send me. I guess so anywhere I can, I can be of help. I'm going to be of help, whether that's fighting on the front line or uh, escorting people to a hospital. I don't really care what I what
0: I do as long as I can help. So, what are you, you happy to drive or something like that for them? Drive ambulances? Happy to do absolutely anything. Yeah, anything, yeah. Right. And, and uh, have you had any sleep since you decided you're going to do this? Not much, no, not much. Uh, sort of, um, it's
2: a really weird feeling. It's becoming very real now and it's, it's, it's sort of, it takes over. Yeah. You sort of can't relax, I'm very anxious, I, I just want to get out there now. Yeah. So waiting around for the, for the paperwork to be sorted out is, is very frustrating.
0: Do you know this part of the world, Leon? Have you ever been to Ukraine or Poland?
2: Never. I've never been to the Ukraine or Poland in my life, no, never.
0: I've never been to Ukraine, but from what we see, Leon, it's a very beautiful country, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was before the bombing. Yeah. I know. Let's hope we can stop more of that, eh? You're obviously inspired by the bravery of the Ukrainian people who are holding up Putin's army, aren't oh, they? Oh, they're, they're unbelievable.
2: That is what makes you want to go and get involved. They are that heroic, they are they are that brave, there's women and children making Molotov cocktails and trying to fight off the... And the, you just must understand how frightened and scared and alone these people must feel
0: mm. well
2: so, i think you just gotta do what you gotta do
0: well Liam, we'd love to keep in touch with you think very hard and be very carefully before you go because it's going to be very dangerous
2: yeah i fully understand that hopefully i'll be able to speak to you when i get back
0: well we hope so maybe we'll be able to talk to you while you're there but leon if you're going take care of yourself and very best of luck all right great to talk to you okay thank you very much god bless goodbye Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. Don't forget to get in touch by tweeting us at mailplus or me at ToryboyPierce. So could Vladimir Putin be toppled? The high security bubble the former KGB agent lives in makes this an unlikely scenario, at least for now. But riding in the mail today, Edward Lucas, senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis, he's also author of Deception, Spies, Lies and How Russia Duped the West, says there's a scenario whereby Putin's 22-year reign could be brought to an end. And let's be honest, it couldn't come quick enough. Edward Lucas joins you now. Edward, I was very struck in the piece you wrote today, not least about how haunted Putin is by what happened to Colonel Gaddafi in Libya.
3: Yes, he has a macabre fascination with the way in which other dictators have ended, um, not just Saddam Hussein being dragged out of a, a bunker, but also um, particularly this um, footage of Gaddafi um, hiding like a rat in a drain, and then being um, appallingly assaulted with a bayonet in a way not suitable for description on your podcast, and then and then and then be beaten to death. And he he knows that in Russian history, uh, if you go back over the centuries, it's really risky being a Russian leader. And he he sort of fetishizes this, and and one it's one of the reasons that he's never stepped down from power, even though he. Um, has at times looked quite bored and unhappy in his job because he doesn't believe anyone will protect him if he's out of power. And I think the the real truth is that even being in power is also um, quite dangerous by Russian historical standards, and that's what my piece is about.
0: Yeah, and you you make the point. He's got a vast security apparatus, uh, military units on 24-hour standby, an independent spy network, power to snoop, bug at will. But for the first time in years... Ordinary Russians are suffering severe pain, cash machines are being emptied, the country's foreign reserves are running low, inflation rocketing, interest rates have soared, but that didn't stop the ruble from still collapsing. And, of course, thousands dying in a conflict that isn't going as well as he expected.
3: That's right, and so really his rule rests on two legs. One is the idea of geopolitical glory, that Russia is now strong, respected, it's not the basket case of the 1990s, and that's running into trouble in Ukraine with both the war being bogged down and the world really almost united in condemnation of Russia. And The other big thing he had was stability at home, that this has been the last 22 years is the longest period in Russian history of modest personal freedoms and limited prosperity and he has Allowed Russians to feel that today is going to be the same as yesterday and tomorrow is going to be the same as today. And that's actually hugely important for Russians who experience so many upheavals. And that's under threat too, because suddenly the economy is in the tailspin and shortages, people don't where they can get cash out of the cash machines, the ruble's not worth anything, um, people losing their jobs. And, and so both the legs of his
0: regime are really being hit simultaneously by what he's done. And you create the scenario where, imagine, for instance, daily sit ins begin in Moscow, soldiers' mother which was a movement founded in 1989 to campaign against the brutal troop of conscripts. We hear, don't we, anecdotally from the front line in Ukraine that the, many of the conscripts didn't even know they were going to fight against Ukraine. People, they often think of their kith and kin. What if those protests were to start in Moscow and then to spread around the country? Or vice versa,
3: starting around the country and spread to Moscow. But you're absolutely right. We think 5000, maybe more. Russians have been killed in, the, in this botched war in Ukraine, and every one of them leaves a mom and a granny and quite likely a girlfriend and maybe a sister and Russian women are very, very determined when they get going, and not the Russian men aren 't as well, but there's a sort of particular steel in the sort of way Russian women go about things when they think they are being maltreated and their loved ones have been sacrificed in the sense of this war and that's why the Soldiers' Mothers Committee was such a formidable campaign in the 1990s against the brutal treatment of conscripts through military bullying and then the wars in Chechnya. And so I wonder if that started going again, then the police would be in a very difficult position. Are you going to get beat up a lot of grannies or do you risk the protest swelling? And I'm hypothesizing that or speculating that maybe told to go and beat up a lot of grannies, perhaps one of the police commanders would switch sides and then that would give the protest sort of extra rocket fuel.
0: And, of course, military commanders who may not like the fact so many of their young conscripts are dying, they might not like the brutal tactics that are being used, the cluster bombs we've heard have been used, which are illegal, the other tactics which are designed to kill civilians, Edward, that could also repulse some of the military commanders who could also, you speculate, turn against the despot.
3: Exactly. So you may get desertions troops just walking away, you may get defections, troops going to the other side, you may get mutinies, and all of those, obviously, to be strongly encouraged, the Ukrainians rather brilliantly are offering, I think it's a million rubles to any Russian soldier who switches sides, Um, we should be supporting that. But you can imagine the army just sort of disintegrating and soldiers just saying we don't want to do this anymore, which we've seen in in other armies, and that was not happened to the Russian army on the Eastern Front around the time of the Bolshevik revolution they just did they started shooting their officers and saying we don't want to do this anymore. So this can happen and, and morale is already very low. And we see from the appallingly bad planning, lacks of lack of fuel and ammunition and out of date meals and so on, how badly Russian soldiers are treated. So I think that that you can imagine the sort of the, the rot setting in from the front and going back and you know feeding back into, into Russia. And that would put the regime under huge strain as well.
0: Just finally, though, Edward, the worry is where you make the point, a deranged and cornered Putin, if things were going badly wrong for him, could he lash out? Could he trigger the nuclear apocalypse? He's got the world's largest nuclear arsenal.
3: Yes, so I'm even one nuke is one too many if it's used. And there's lots to worry about here. One is he tries to nuke his way out of it. And then that raises the spectre the spectacle of whether, or the spectre of whether. A some one of the regime insiders might say the boss has gone mad. We have to do something. There's also the danger of Russia breaking up, which um, I come you know, former Yugoslavia. And I remember how awful that was. And this would be Yugoslavia with nuclear weapons. So that's not anything to look forward to. And the third worry is that whoever takes over from Putin might not necessarily be a born again Democrat, but some kind of General Galtieri figure. Who and, and I've always argued, and I'll leave you with this, that our problems with Russia actually predate Putin just we didn't notice in the 1990s and i think they'll outlast him as well
0: very interesting as always edward lucas very powerful piece in the paper today he's a senior fellow at the center for european policy analysis and do read that book deception spies lies and how russia Duped the west because it's compelling and very timely time for our regular city update with ruth sunland group business editor at the daily mail and mail on sunday huge story again ruth coming out of russia both bp and shell are they
4: pulling out they are so both of them are pulling out and an at quite considerable cost actually, although um, obviously this is the price of doing the right thing rather belatedly in both cases so in 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 the case of BP, the cost of pulling out could be as high as twenty five billion dollars, mm. which is obviously obviously quite huge that that's not nailed on yet that's just you know what what analysts are saying and based on rather limited information that the company's given itself. Um, these things are a bit problematic because to take BP, for example, they had a big investment, 20% stake in a company called Rosneft, which is quite literally putting the petrol into the tanks going into the Ukraine. So obviously that wasn't a tenable investment for them to hold on to and money from that was going into all of our pension funds, which you know is not not, I think, something that the average British saver would want to be would want to be paying for the problem is they've said they're going to exit these investments same thing with Shell but how exactly who do you sell this stake to who wants it's it it's who wants it well maybe the Chinese pariah pariah yeah,
0: investment
4: completely pariah investment so maybe the Chinese would buy it Maybe the Qataris would buy something like that.
0: Would anybody in Russia have the money to buy it, Ruth? Would they want it?
4: Well, probably not. I mean, I guess, you know, the other thing that might happen is that President Putin might simply seize it, Mm. you know, which is not beyond the bounds of possibility. But, you know, either way, I think you have to think, well, this, this is an asset that is now worth Nothing or near to nothing at the moment, what one of my questions about all of this really is we've had all sorts of woke ESG environmental, social, and governance investment in the city for years, and all they've been preoccupied with is is green issues, but nobody said anything. About the fact that these companies have been doing business with Putin for decades. And it's hardly a surprise that, I mean, okay, this, this extent of this is a big shock, but it shouldn't come as a surprise that. Putin is a corrupt and bloodthirsty individual. I think we've all known that for, for a very long time.
0: He sent his troops into Georgia in 2008. He annexed Crimea in 2014. And still, these wretched oil companies kept their money in Russia because they were doing very nice out of it, presumably.
4: You, you're absolutely right. So BP has made literally billions, $5 billion of dividends from Rosneft in the, in the past nine years that it's been invested in that. Um, really, you know, large sums. Rosneft accounts for a huge proportion of its production and its reserves. I mean, it it's saying, by the way, that it thinks it can carry on paying its dividends to UK shareholders and others as before, which again is just a, a measure of the size and scope of this company. Bernard Looney, its boss, said it, you know, it was BP's like a cash machine at the moment and and he's not wrong. By the way, Just a little fact here. Bernard Looney, the boss of BP, also announced rather quietly that he's stepping down from an organisation called the Russian Geographical Society. He said this on Sunday. Now, that might sound fairly harmless. You know, it might sound like it's just one of those do-gooder institutions. But the chairman of that is none other than Vladimir Putin. Ah, So he really was Ah. rubbing shoulders with the Kremlin. And, you know, I think really there you have man with quite a bit to answer for albeit, or, or credit to him, he has done the right thing in the end but Eventually. Not, not until it got right to the brink.
0: Fascinating Ruth, absolutely fascinating. He's giving you plenty to write. That is Ruth Sunderland who is of course group business editor of the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. So a revolutionary new cancer therapy could offer a second chance to people with terminal tumours. 66 skin cancer patients took part in a trial of tumour infiltrating lymphocytes, many of whom had been given only weeks to live. Now the therapy works in more than a third of the cases. Now joining me to talk about this is Dr Andrew Furness. He's a consultant medical oncologist who specialises in the treatment of cancers of the kidney and skin. Dr Furness well this seems to be a game changer.
5: Thanks very much for sort of raising the profile of this work so we really want to try and bring the benefit of using the immune system or the power of the immune system against cancer to more patients. It it is the ultimate tool you know it's in the body it never goes out of the body like a chemotherapy drug might do or other medicines you know they work when they're in the body but not after that. The immune system has a memory, Um, it can adapt, so it's something that can adapt to cancers which are constantly evolving, and it can keep coming back in waves and waves. So it's an excellent tool. The issue is that current ways of using the immune system, so-called immunotherapies, don't work for many patients and many different cancer types, and there are a number of reasons for that. And so there are lots of efforts to work out, well, are there other ways by which we can harness that power? And one of them is what you just mentioned, tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapy. So what this involves is doing a a small surgery. This is not to try and remove all sites of cancer. It's a dedicated surgery to remove a very small lump of cancer. Typically, that would just be a small day case operation. And then that cancer goes in under very sterile conditions and regulated conditions to a manufacturing lab where they isolate the killer immune cells. These are T cells. Some of us might have heard of in the context of COVID um, are cells which normally kill viruses, but they're also very good at killing cancer cells. So those T cells are isolated from the tumor, which comes from this small operation and expanded up to very high numbers, the many billions. Um, And then patients come back into hospital and receive those many billions of expanded cells into a vein before having a treatment afterwards to promote them to expand further. And the really exciting thing is that you can take patients that don't appear to be benefiting or haven't benefited from current forms of immunotherapy. And as you mentioned, roughly 36% of them responded to the treatment. And not only did they respond, but the so-called median duration of that response um, hasn't been reached, which means that a number of patients are still doing well so we don't have a value in the middle to understand what's the average time people do well with this treatment. We don't know because people are still doing well. So it's, it's really exciting that you can use a different way and, and harness the power of the immune system.
0: Is this down in the Royal Marsden in London? Because I know one of the patients referred to in the piece in the mail, Julia Morse, she'd been referred to the Royal Marsden in London and the Royal Marsden has been a, a radical cancer hospital for many years.
5: Yeah, so it's a trial that, that we still have open here. It's actually closed for the setting that that Julia's in, so just so so the audience understand that. But it was open at other sites as well, including Cambridge, and it's been open around the world. And the the results from this have been reported or published, as we say. They've named the tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapy, the TIL therapy from that trial, Lipolucil. So it has a name. And lufolucil is a treatment in this context for patients with melanoma, which is the nastiest type of skin cancer. So the, the data is being sort of prepared and presented to the FDA in the States. And the normal sort of process after that is it would be reviewed by the European Medicines Agency, EMA, and then NICE here, to look at implementing it in, in Europe and, and the UK. And that's n- normally what happens.
0: And it's extraordinary, Doctor. Just some of these people had just weeks to live.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we have to be responsible in how we describe all of this. It's, you know, the problem with melanoma is that it's a disease that if you don't have any useful treatment options, unfortunately, it doesn't sit still. It behaves in a really aggressive manner. And so some patients in the absence of any good treatments would have a, a very limited time to live. So it can be game-changing in that context. Melanoma, where nothing has worked, is a really dangerous situation to be in. I think what what I might just say which I think is even more exciting, is this same treatment has been trialed earlier on in patient pathways. So as a first immunotherapy treatment for patients. And in that context, the data that's been presented so far shows that roughly 80% of patients benefited um, amongst the small numbers that have been reported. Um, Also good responses in patients with head and neck cancer, cervical cancer. So so this looks really exciting. And, And this is only one example of a new pillar of immunotherapy, so-called cellular therapies, and that's something that we're really, myself particular focused in research here, so we're really excited as to sort of what the future might hold from that perspective.
0: And can I ask you just finally on this, Doctor, I know you appreciate we've talked about other cancers at the end, but skin cancer, just how big a problem is that now in Britain? Because we tend to think, oh well, we don't live in a particularly sunny country, but it is a growing, growing problem, isn't it?
5: Yeah, you're right, Andrew, we don't live in a solid, sunny country, but COVID aside, the world's become a smaller place, hasn't it? So we all travel more. We all get more sunlight, probably from earlier ages. And melanoma is, as I mentioned, the nastiest type of skin cancer. The incidence of melanoma has quadrupled since the 1970s. And it's now the fifth most common cancer in adults. So um, that, that includes you know, many melanomas, just for people listening, as in moles that arise in your skin, about eight out of 10 are cured by surgery. So that should really be remembered and what we're talking about you know more difficult situation is when melanoma reappears at a distant site and that's where these treatments are being trialed
0: all right well that's really interesting and the very best of luck with it doctor and very well done it's very exciting and um we share your excitement that's andrew furness consultant medical oncologist talking about this remarkable treatment That's what we've got time for today for the latest from the Daily Mail. Download the Mail Plus app every weekday at 5pm. You can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night.